Good morning. It is good to see you all this morning. We're going to continue in our, our summer series in the Psalms. So if you would, go ahead and turn in your, your Bibles to Psalm chapter 4. Or Psalm 4, or the fourth Psalm. And we're going to begin reading there in just a moment. If you did not know, and some of the Bibles have these particular headings, I know the ESV does, the particular headings of book one there right before chapter one, because the Psalms, all 150 of them, are organized into five different books. And of course, we are in book one, which is chapters one through, our Psalm one through 41, book two is 42 through 72. Book 3 is 73 through 89, book 4, 90 through 106, and then book 5, 107 through 150. And even though these, the Psalms is divided into these five books, they are still built upon one another. They are particularly, specifically ordered and purposefully ordered to build on one another that we may understand the next one because of the ones previously. We interpret the next one because of the others. And in particular, we see that going from Psalm 3 to Psalm 4, because they work together because of their similarities. And I'm going to give you a few of those similarities in, in just a moment. But in particular, it seems like the context of Psalm 3 is implied or given into Psalm 4. Remember the superscription in Psalm 3 was a Psalm of David when he fled his son Absalom, his son who was trying to take the throne from David and the kingdom of God from David to usurp that role from him. Now Psalm 4 as well has a superscription as well. You see that or a, or a title. It says to the choir master with stringed instruments a Psalm of David, but it doesn't give us that historical description like Psalm 3 does with a particular historical event. But when you read Psalm 4, you realize that David is in distress, as it says it, again, that he's facing enemies in distress once again, which, by the way, is kind of the theme of book one of the Psalms. Both Psalms, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, they use similar words like foes and distress. In verse 1 here in Psalm 4, he uses the word answer. Lord, answer me in prayer. And just like in Psalm 3, verse 4, he talks about answered prayer. In verse 1, he also says he calls or called upon the Lord, which is the same word in Psalm 3 as cry. He cried out to the Lord. In Psalm 3, David said that the Lord is my glory, which is implied again in verse 2 of Psalm 4, that he is my honor. And lastly, we see how David's confidence in the Lord is shown, by, or shown and illustrated by how well he could sleep. That even though he's in the midst of his son trying to kill him and usurp him from his throne, he is able to sleep because he trusts in the Lord. And we see that same confidence in verse 8 in Psalm 4. Even the, the Selah at the end of, of Psalm 3 is acting as somewhat of a pause into the next psalm. And here we see the, I think another similarity is the crescendos, I think, of Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. In Psalm 3, it is salvation belongs to the Lord. Right there at the very end. And, and then in, I think the crescendo again in Psalm 4 is, the Lord is my joy. And you see the similarities between the two. Let's look to chapter 4 and let's read this together. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? 
How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the, of the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they, than they have with their grain and their wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Now this song, as you see, is introduced as to the choir master with string instruments, right? So now there's a praise band that has started, there's guitars and, and, and basses, and they're ready to play this particular song. David prays in verse 1. And then in verse 2, he, he rebukes these, these men. But he doesn't leave them in just rebuke, but he gives them counsel there in verses 3 through 5. And then lastly, in verses 6 through 8, David corrects them in what sounds to us and should sound to us like repentance. And like I said earlier, Psalm 3 sound, is, is to be connected with Psalm 4, and it sounds like the same situation that David was once delivered from, from uh, Absalom is now being brought into Psalm 4 as being the distress that God has delivered him from. And now based upon the Lord's faithfulness to him, David can now depend upon the Lord now. Now there's some commentaries who want to they want to nail down, what is this exact situation? What is the, the distress now? Who are these, these men that are shaming and dishonoring David? Who, who are these, these men? And, and I, one of the uh, ones that was suggested, and I thought it was kind of interesting, was that maybe this was during a time in, in David's reign when there was famine upon the land. And during that particular famine, uh, famine in an agrarian society is a disaster. It's, it's, not, it's not good because it means uh, suffering uh, on, a, on a large scale. All right, so it's not just an economic loss, but it could be a loss of, of, of life. And so in that, David, who's the king, who's the leader, this reflects uh, upon him, and he's feeling the heat from the people around him. People are turning against him as you hear the mood of the people in verses 6 and seven. This context is somewhat favored because there's agricultural terms, right, like grain and, and, and wine that, that people wanted. And, and not only are people turning on David, but you can see that as they turn from David, they turn from the Lord. And we can understand that in, in some ways because in, we understand human nature that when life gets hard, tough times economically comes, people turn from God. They turn, from, they turn from the Lord. They go look for other clever devices to deliver them, for them to find hope or, or somewhat of a relief. In good times, people want to trust in the Lord because that seems easily. But when hard times come, people want to turn to worldly vices to cope. Or they just get angry at God or they get angry at each, at each other or angry even at the church. Now, again, I'm not sure if this is the historical context or not. It makes, it makes sense, and it can be helpful in somewhat. But what's more important is not necessarily the specifics of what's happening, actually happening. He doesn't tell us, nor does the superscription tell us. But what, what matters to us is that this psalm is telling us that life is real, that things happen, and that no matter who we are, one way or another, sometimes we are trusting in the Lord, and then other times we are feeling the distress of life. Life is real. It's not always linear. 
our hearts and our minds are not always evenly keeled as we would want them to be or we would like them to be and sometimes even as we think that they are. And the situation with Absalom certainly we can understand was difficult. And then again when another situation arose David is still in distress and is calling out to the Lord. And I think many of us understand this. We understand the experience the experience of of faithfulness of God. We understand that we've experienced God's faithfulness. We delighted in God's faithfulness, but yet when something comes back up, we understand not only the temptation, but also how easily it is for us to feel and become distressed once again, as if God has never showed his faithfulness to us in the first place. And the beauty of this psalm, and the beauty of all the psalms, I think, is they show us the real human condition is our emotions. And in many ways, in our emotions and in these psalms, it's showing us that these things are okay as long as we are responding appropriately to the Lord. But one of the great things about Psalm 4 is that Psalm 4, is, of course, is pointing us to the New Testament. And one of the ways that we know it's pointing us to the New Testament because the New Testament takes us back to Psalm 4. And it tells us uh, about this Christian truth on how Christians are to live from the New Testament, pointing back to this ethic of Psalm 4. And, and the reason why I say that is because the Apostle Paul applies David's moral uh, exhortation from Psalm 4 to Christians. And he sets forth to us what it looks like for those who have heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who have believed, who are in faith, who have been taught the gospel and are being transformed by the gospel, that they have this new life. Maybe you caught it when we read verse 4. And he says, be angry and do not sin. Now you know that that sounds familiar. Somewhere in the New Testament, I know I've heard that before, and you're correct. That's from Ephesians 4, verse 26. Paul quotes this verse. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but the flow of thought of Ephesians 4 here in verse 26 is coming from, I think, Psalm 4. It aligns right with David. And because Paul is teaching these former pagans of Ephesus how to put off and put away wickedness and idolatry. Because in Christ, you have been transformed. You have been made new. And you now have holy lives to live unto the Lord. And of course, this verse is dealing with our anger in ways that we are not to sin and we're not to let the sun go down in our, in our anger. But it sounds a lot alike what David is saying in verse 4, doesn't it? Because David is saying, be angry and do not sin, but go home and ponder. Rest your head on your bed and think about it. In the New Testament, the New Testament is applying Psalm 4 to the Christian life. I believe that we should rightly apply Psalm 4 in the principles of the Christian life from Ephesians according to Psalm 4. Now, again, this, this, this sermon is mainly going to be directed toward Christians. To hear these Christian principles are for you. And I'm going to share with you with how, what Christians are to do and, and how Christians, they, they possess the, uh, the Holy Spirit and the, and the work of Christ and how it's transformed them and then how that then is worked out. The fruits of the Spirit. These are the fruits of the Spirit. They are not seeds to gain the Spirit. And they are for all circumstances for Christians in distress or in not and they're to be embraced in all circumstances. Yet for unbelievers, my hope is that in this psalm, you'll not hear more things that you need to do to change your life, to make things better, to be more accepted. But you will hear that the God of all righteousness is the one who gives grace. 
and only in him have we've been have we've been delivered from the distress and the foe of sin and death our own wicked rebellion that brought shame and dishonor upon the lord and that he will give you the faith to believe and to repent of sin because he alone is whom we trust in and he alone is, is the one who lifts up the light of our, fa of our faces upon us. And that he would give you more joy in your heart than anything else. So I have four principles then for the Christian life, and we'll apply them appropriately from Psalm 4 as we tie them back to Ephesians 4. First principle is Christians pray. In this time of distress, in this song that is sung, there is a prayer. In Psalm 3, David prays, even crying out to the Lord in his, in his prayer, not only about his situation, but to pray in adoration of the Lord. He adores, and, uh, uh, adores the Lord and, and how the God will keep his promises as he recalls this promise-keeping God who is his shield and his glory and then now in psalm 4 david in his distress is crying out to the lord he is pleads with the lord to answer and we see that in verse 1 the necessity that as christians we fix our hope in the lord through prayer as christians our our faith is strengthened by Remembering God's character, setting our eyes upon him and setting our, our eyes on the things that are above, as Colossians 3 says. And, and through the reading and through the studying of God's word, but also by prayer. And in our prayers, we must remember to adore the Lord. And we adore him not just for the things that he gives us. That's, that's a prayer of thanksgiving. But we adore him for who he is in his character and in his nature. And that in his character and in his nature, he acts and has acted according to that. He says in verse 1, he says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Short prayer. And it's bookended with his requests. The request is, answer me when I call. And be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Brothers and sisters, isn't this the hope of all of our prayers is that we will be heard? This is why we petition. Maybe why we don't petition is because we don't believe God will hear us. This doesn't mean, and some may read this, and it doesn't mean that God can't hear us. Answer me like, God, can you hear me? Hello? Hello, McFly? It's not that he can't hear us. You, you might remember the days, or when you, you can't get a hold of them, but you might remember the days when um, not everybody in this room has a phone in their pocket. The, the days, uh, this is going to give some of you younger individuals a little education on how it used to be, that we used to have to wait till we got home to make a simple thing like a phone call. We used to have to memorize phone numbers and and uh, older saints, do you remember how easy that was? Yeah, oh yeah. 321-259-8030. That's my home phone number growing up. You had to wait till you got home to answer the phone or take a call. We were much more understanding, I think, back then when it comes to that because we knew that was what you had to do. And if you had to go home and make a call, you made a call. And if you got the answer machine, you remember those things? The answer machine? Rewind it. Hi, this is Dan. It's kind of what it sounded like on those terrible things. 
And now we get angry. Why don't they text me back? How come they don't answer when I call? I mean, doesn't everybody have their phone in their pocket? I mean, I don't, but have their phone or on their watch or, or whatever it may be. But the, the meaning in this text is not doubting that God can answer or God is unable to hear. Now, there's some people that believe that. It's not, it's not biblical. The Lord doesn't have a problem with hearing and answering prayer. He's always home. And like a, maybe one of those cheesy church signs, his phone is always charged. <laughs> I just made that one up. Someone can use that. God's iPhone never dies. How about that? David is asking the Lord to act. That's what he's asking. He's acknowledging that answered prayer is what? He says it's grace. God, would you answer me? That is just, that is your grace. That is an act of, of, of grace. And in his prayer, as we've already kind of introduced this, introduced this point, is that he, he looks to the character of God as we are to look to the character of God as we, as we pray. We look to his character. We look to his, to his nature, who he is, his righteousness. And in his righteousness, that means that he will always keep his commitments to his people. He will always do what is right. Oh, God of my righteousness. This not only has the sense of his holiness and character, absolutely that's on display. His complete, outright, uprightness. And that, but also that he will always act according to his righteousness. That means that how he answers our prayers, brothers and sisters, is always good. It's always right. It is always good. And so this phrase, that we, this simple phrase we hear from David, O oh God of my righteousness, is something we should imprint on our hearts and on our minds and remember to pray this very often. O oh God of my righteousness. Because as his people who have been justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ, do you ever doubt that he will not always act according to what is right and according to what is good? Oh, God of my righteousness. And so when it comes to our distress, we have this posture toward our Heavenly Father that never changes, that is always the same, the same as our God, my God of my righteousness. And that he will always act according to to his righteousness. He will always do what is right. He will always do what is good. Will a loving father give his son a stone if he asks for bread? Will a loving father give his son a snake if he asks for a fish? Will a loving father not pick up his daughter when she is in trouble? Our prayers, brothers and sisters, are strengthened when we remember who God is. And we are strengthened by remembering what God has done. And that's what David is doing. You've given me relief before. The first part of the prayer was a prayer of adoration, and now it's moved into almost like a prayer of thanksgiving. I'm remembering to be thankful, practicing thankfulness and gratitude. And, and saying this, he's not saying, uh, God, you're obligated here. You're obligated to act ag again in the same ways that you acted before. He's not saying, I deserve this. Sort of like what we studied this past Thursday night with Samson, who prayed a prayer that he deserved God to give him water. It's remembering. This is remembering for our own sake the mercy of the Lord, his grace and his compassion, his authority, strength to provide and give for his, to, to his people. And it is for our good to remember his goodness 
and his glory to deliver and to provide, to rescue, and to heal. And if he doesn't, is he still not acting according to his righteousness? According to how he is right and, and good and for his glory. And Christians, as we, we pray, always remember that the Lord's grace in saving you. Remember the, the Lord's grace in, in changing you and continually changing you. Let that gratitude spring up like a well to bring joy when we pray and when we bring our petitions before the Lord. But also let it give you confidence in praying. And that be to drive you to pray. Remember all the ways that you can remember how the Lord has acted in your life to provide and give in specific ways. Remember praying for that person that you shared the gospel with. It seemed like they would never hear and they would never come and they would never become a Christian and remember now how the Lord has answered your prayer. Remember praying for that, that great need financially, for a job, for health, for a friend, or, or a, for a loved one. Remember that prayer for a troubled child and how the Lord answered your prayer. Remember praying for wisdom and, and guidance for a particular way to serve someone who's going through a hard time or a particular person who, who you're kind of struggling in relationship with. Remember how the Lord answered your prayer. Remember when you prayed on how to love a brother or a sister and the Lord answered your prayer. What's that old hymn say? Count your blessings, name them one by one, and see, remember what the Lord has done. You see, and we know this, Again, he answers according, not to our will, but according to his will. O God of my righteousness. And the first principle we see here in verse 1 is Christians, we pray. The second principle is that Christians love truth. Christians love truth. In the next two verses, David turns to address the men who are, who are causing the distress and the problems and essentially what he does in this first these first verses of this song is he's rebuking these guys oh man how long shall my honor be turned to shame that's a rebuke how long will you love vain words and and see after lies that's a that's a rebuke for those who have rejected the Lord and his authority the commands and prohibitions of his word the promises and prescriptions of the Lord are worthy only of rebuke those that mock the existence of God those that say that if you believe in God you are doing more harm to other people and those who want to take who want to make everyone to regard their wicked or immorality as righteous behavior need to be appropriately rebuked and why because we love truth, not lies, not the vain things of this world. So when it comes to this psalm, these men who have should have shown honor to God's chosen king, and of course, whatever the situation was, David was the anointed king. David did not honor himself, but it was God who chose it for him. And again, we understand this and seeing, pointing forward, looking forward, Biblical theologically, we're looking forward that, that David's life is pointing forward to who? To Christ, to Jesus. And when Jesus came as the rightful king of Israel, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers, the scholars, the leaders, people did not welcome him, much less honor him. Instead, he was mocked. And he was crucified. He came to his own. John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Jews were not impressed 
with Jesus one bit. And by the way, many of them still are not. I read a, a, a story how when the Jews for Jesus were doing a rally in New York City, it was causing a big ruckus among the Jewish community, as it, of course it probably would, and there was an interview on the radio station, a local radio does, interviewing a rabbi who was not for Jesus, and he said, he said, well, isn't something, isn't what they're teaching now something that impresses you that you should be thinking about and considering? And this uh, Jewish rabbi said this. He said, Jesus didn't impress us the first time when he came, and he certainly doesn't impress us now. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They weren't impressed with Jesus, and many times they were not impressed with David. Joseph was rejected. And how many times was, did the people grumble against Moses killing Isaiah, the suffering of Jeremiah and all the other prophets? They were all rejected. And not only did these men reject the king, but they turned away from the truth. And they believed lies. They, as it says, it says they loved vain words and they see after lies. This is an interesting phrase. They love their conspiracies. We call that fake news. And their flatteries. And their sentimentalities. And they love their emotionalism. And then they defended their lies. It could be nothing else but this lie. So they rejected and despised what is true, the truth about the Lord. This is a description of those that reject the king and reject the truth, which makes a clear division between those that love the Lord and those that don't. And that's exactly what Paul does in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. He says this. He says, Now I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Vain things. And they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and to practice every kind of impurity. Brothers and sisters, this is why we reject lies. Because our minds are no longer captive to sin and no longer captive to, to darkness. We are no longer alienated from the truth. We're no longer alienated from the Lord. We're no longer ignorant to the truth because our hearts are no longer hearts of stone, but they are hearts of flesh. They're not darkened. They're not hardened. They're not callous. We're no longer given up to sensuality, greed, and every kind, of, uh, every kind of impurity. And yet here in verse 3, Psalm 4, he comes back out with them with the truth. He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call, calls to him. So following your lies, he says, be sure be sure that God already knows who, who are his. He knows the godly. Now, who are the godly? That's a, it, we should be asking that question. We shouldn't just be assuming here the, who are the godly. We need to be asking, who is the godly? Well, looking back from the Psalms, remember the Psalms build upon another? Psalm 2, verse 6 through 9 shows us what it means here. The one who has been set apart is who? The king. The son. And this king, this son, will be the one who rules the nations and judge them. So verse 3 is not talking about the many, but it's talking about the one. It's talking about the one individual here. The meaning here isn't that Yahweh has set apart the whole congregation of those who live out steadfast love for him. Because that question makes, who can do that? Who can, who can do that? But rather, this verse is showing us that he has set apart the man who lives for himself. Now, certainly in the immediate context is David. 
but the greater is pointing out to the Son, Jesus Christ, who is set apart for the Lord. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The principle here for us is that we are to love the truth. And the truth is the godly that has been set apart is Christ who says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And we love him. And we love that the Lord has set apart the godly, the godly, for himself. Because it's him. Outside of Christ, we're not the godly ones. No matter how hard we try, we're only, we're only the godly when Christ has made us righteous. And then in him, by the work of indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we pursue godliness, which is Christ's likeness. Godliness apart from Christ isn't godliness, it's demon worship. Otherwise, we're just going to be like all the other men that these verses are addressing. Failing to give honor, bringing shame, loving vain words and lies. So now the truth of the, the gospel is this, is that now we can, because of Christ, we can walk in obedience, holiness, and righteousness. And that's the point of Ephesians 4. At the end of Ephesians 4 there, in verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth. Why? Because we love the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Look down to verse 21, 29. Excuse me. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that is good for building up, fits the occasion, and gives grace to those that hear. Why? Because as Christians, we love the truth, and the truth is Christ. And we take that truth, and we don't hold it to ourselves, but we speak it to our neighbor, neighbors. And in, in an account here, I think Ephesians 4 is definitely speaking within the church. And we've heard this before, that we're taking God's word with each other and we speak it to one another as if it's an echo chamber. Let it reverberate off of one another. Why? Because he says we are members of one another. That's why we love truth. No longer the vain words or seek after lies. The third principle as Christians repent. So because we love truth, because we love God's word, then we understand then ourselves in such a way that we need, that we know that we need to always be repenting of sin. Again, David in these verses addressing those men who are causing distress and dishonor, who love lies, and we call them unbelievers, but after this rebuke, he calls them to repentance. Verse 4, we've already read verse 4. Be angry, do not sin, ponder in your own hearts, in your own beds, and be silent, say law. So whatever it is that you may be angry at, anger is an emotion, right? It's an emotion that we all have. It's an emotion that we've all experienced. And if you live in a fallen world, you're going to get angry one way or another. You're, you're going to get upset, you're going to get disappointed, you're going to get angry, and whether that anger is justified or not, as it says here, be angry and do not sin, that anger should never lead us into sin. And we all know what anger is, we all know what the effects of anger is, and you don't need me to give you some illustration or even a demonstration of what anger is. We all know, we've all been there, whether it is you, you get fit into fits of rage, or you just hold it in tight and don't tell anybody. And the, the, the mental image here being illustrated here is he says, be wise. Go to your beds. Speak quietly. Be self-controlled in your hearts. So here's the image. It's the image of this rebellious man who has realized the error of his, of his ways and of his life and of his thinking and of the lies that he has believed. 
and he was able to be encouraged to reflect upon the judgment that he faces and, and thinking uh, and his thinking and calling him to repent and to submit to truth. That's the image that's being set here. And you, then you have Selah at the end, the pause. Because that's what you're meant to stop and pause, ponder. And isn't this sort of the, the picture of what, what Jesus taught of the rebellious sinner, the tax collector, who when he realized and understood his sin, he couldn't even come up to the temple and pray. But yet he prayed with his eyes lifted up, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you ever been there? The ethic from verse 4 is what Paul picked up on back again in Ephesians 4. For Christians who are no longer the same, we're no longer this, this old man. And as we read verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger is one of those places that gives opportunity to the devil for us to sin and to cause great destruction, as James would say, start a raging fire with our tongues and consume all those around us. David goes on to say of repentance in verse 5 that then to offer true worship, offer right sacrifices, put your trust in the Lord, meaning that if they've submitted themselves to the Lord, then, then taking refuge in Him alone, trusting in the Lord, then offerings will be made in, in faith, and then their offerings will be made righteous. Verse 6, we recount some of the things that were were being said, some of the questions of, of doubt. And yet David's counsel to them and answers them is to lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Meaning this, it's only the Lord who satisfies our souls and our greatest blessing. And that is why as Christians we keep coming back. Because he is the one that, it, that lifts us up and shines that light upon our faces. This is why we keep repenting, and this is why we keep coming back to him, because he is the one who continually shows us good. For the unbeliever this morning, the, the God's word is calling you, as the David is calling these unbelieving, unfaithful men, to repentance of your sin. Do not let the sun go down on this, as Paul would say to ponder in your own hearts humbly and to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord because it is only through His sacrifice alone that you can be saved, that you can be regenerated, and that you can be made new, to turn from your sin and then to hunger and thirst for His righteousness. But Christians, we too are always to be repenting because the more and more that we grow in Christ, and the more and more that we're growing in Christ-likeness and we're knowing His Word even more and more, and as we study the Word together and as we continue to uh, be bound together and binded together as one another as the, as the church, and we study the Word together and we pray together, then we still continually realize just how far we really are. But we also know this truth as well, is that His grace and His steadfast love always drives us back to Him. It always drives us back to him the christian that understands the gospel in that when they sin they run to god not from the lord back to ephesians 4 verse 20 i like what he says here he says but that's not the way that you learned christ meaning you didn't learn a gospel that says just keep on sinning Verse 21, assuming that you've heard about him and you were taught in him, that's Christ, as the truth is Jesus. Here's repentance. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt and deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Repentance is putting away the old man. It's putting away the attitudes of these wicked men that is there in Psalm 4. And as, as, as Paul would say, is to put on this new, new self. Repentance is this renewal of the spirit of our minds, as he says here. And as he says there in verse 28, there's a, there's a practical example of repentance. I love this. This is a practical, very, uh, 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 very easy to understand what repentance is in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, there might have been a, a thief in their congregation who might have still been dabbling in that lifestyle. And this is being addressed, and rightfully so. But it's not just about the thief who stops stealing. stealing. It's about now this particular person who's been transformed by the gospel is now one who now works hard. Who the fruit of the repentance of his life is now the dude has a job that is making money. And he's not just making money to satisfy his own needs, but he's making money that, get, that he can give it away. That's repentance. Repentance is not just confessing and understanding our grief of sin, but it's turning from sin and running from it in such a way that brings about the fruit of great joy that everyone can enjoy. That's the change the heart that the gospel does in the life of the believer. So brothers and sisters, this is why as Christians, even in here as he's addressing these unbelieving men who are dishonoring him, that it is teaching us the lesson that we are to always to be repentant. And the last principle is that as Christians, we are to have joy and peace. We look at these last two verses. I said in the beginning that this is the crescendo of the psalm. And that he gives us joy in verse 7. I'm, I love this verse. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when, they ha when their grain and their wine abound. So if, if this is that situation with the famine, these people are freaking out because now their grain and their wine is dwindling up and drying up and going away. And what David is saying here, what this psalm is saying, is, says, you have given me more joy and you've put more joy in my heart than when they're at the peak of their experience of worldly pleasure and joy and excitement and adoration for man. You've put more joy in my heart than they have experienced when they're at the top of the mountain of power, authority, and things that are all around them. Ha! That's amazing. How many of us would say that that's the kind of joy that we have in the, in the Lord, that no matter if we are in the mountain or if we are on the, the valley, that our joy in Christ is far greater than anything that this world could ever produce. Again, stupid prosperity gospel. They would say, oh, David was wrong. My joy is in my grain. My joy is in my wine. And David says, no, my joy is in the Lord. Because when these things are taking away, it's still there. I'm yelling again. Walking with the Lord brings more joy that transcends the highest possible points in any kind of worldly wealth. Digest that for the rest of the day. When you look at the lifestyles of the rich and famous on YouTube and television and athletes, this verse realigns our hearts. Because when we think of Christ, Think of the joy that we have in Christ. 
over all other things. And in that joy, verse 8, it gives us peace. Last week we talked about sleeping, so we're not going to talk too much about it. The idea is peace. That when there is peace with God, i.e. sleep, then truly one has peace with themselves, which means you're able to sleep. If you have peace with God and peace with yourself, then, then honestly we're at peace with the world. We're at peace with each other. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And in Christ, this is what the Lord has appointed for us. He has appointed that kind of safety, that kind of peace for us. And as we finish up here, the ethic now from the New Testament, again from Ephesians 4, is that outcome, that outcome of that joy, that outcome of that peace, that outcome of a, of a changed life, a new life in Christ. A Christian who is at peace is not one who also can sleep soundly, but also in their everyday life and in their everyday relationships are changed to be peacemakers. Verse 21, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such for as to building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus Christ has changed you, brother, sister. And in that change, he has brought you into peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. But that peace isn't just something that takes place in our hearts. It certainly does. But what's inside is played out in our relationships. It's played out with each other, with one another. That peace changes the posture toward one another. It changes the way that we speak to one another. It changes the way that we talk to one another. It changes how we forgive one another. It changes how we treat one another. Christian, Christ is our joy. And if he is our joy, then we have peace. And that peace is played out amongst the body of Christ. Psalm 4 has shown us something about the Christian life with a little help from Paul from Ephesians 4. Now Christians pray, Christians love the truth, Christians repent, and Christians have joy and peace. So beloved, as we hear God's word and have heard God's word, I encourage you this morning in the same way to pursue these same things through the Christian life. To the glory of God and for our joy. And all of God's people say, Amen.